Uh, If you have a Bible, do you want to turn in it to the book of Exodus? Exodus chapter 4, which is, I think, page 60 in the church Bibles. Exodus chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 to 17. We're picking up uh, from where we were last week, which was we met at the story of the burning bush, which we have the best illustration ever in every Presbyterian church across the land. Um, And it is a sign of this wonderful event that happens where God meets Moses on the mountain that will later become Mount Sinai. Um, And we read, starting chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out of your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into his staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put out your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and he looked at, pulled it out and the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put it back into his cloak and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe the two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow in speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? who gives them sight or makes them blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if you were, as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. This is God's word. Amen. Um, here, Moses is given a great command to go with good news to the people of Israel, which is to go and to tell them that they are to leave the place where they are in bondage in slavery, Egypt, and travel three days into the desert to worship God. And Moses, after he hears that he's been given this message, this good news to take to the people, he begins to have excuses. Um, we see in this passage the three excuses that he has, that he, he is, makes him reluctant to want to share this good news back in Egypt, where he could be killed, where he could be arrested because of the murder. And yet I think the first excuse that he gives is one that we probably all feel when it comes to sharing our faith. And it's probably the most natural one whenever we are shying away from sharing the good news that we have with those around us, which is summed up so well in verse 1. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? 
I imagine for many of us, as soon as I talk about sharing your faith with your friends or your family, we all begin to get a wee bit nervous and feel a wee bit guilty. Something we all know we should be doing, but something so many of us shy away from. Because, if we're honest, we feel in our heart of hearts that we wouldn't be able to convince them. They wouldn't believe us and it would go badly. We have the same objection that Moses has at the start of this passage. They won't, people won't believe or listen to me. My family will roll their eyes at me. How do I get them to believe me? And yet I think this passage gives us two really great things to encourage us on that journey. God gives Moses confidence in what he believes and what he's saying. And he gives him a commission to go and do it. Confidence and commission. First thing we see is the confidence that God wants to give Moses. Moses, whenever he begins to doubt that he could convince the people of Israel that really he has this message from God, God gives him signs to prove that he is in fact God's messenger. To give him confidence, confidence in that he has been sent and confidence that people will believe him. And the confidence starts off with the first sign that he gets given, which is a staff. Now, Moses would have been a shepherd, and so the staff in his hand would probably have been a shepherd's crook. But a staff in the ancient world was far more than just a, a, a stick for bait and sheep if they went the wrong way. But rather, a staff was also a symbol of authority, kind of similar to the way a scepter works. We are probably all a lot more familiar with royal imagery uh, over the past couple of weeks um, for obvious reasons. And partially, these images have stretched back, even back to the time of Moses, where on top of Queen Elizabeth's coffin at the minute, there is a scepter, which is, in a sense, the more royal and grandiose version of a staff. Because whoever holds the scepter has the authority of the crown. And so Moses is given this staff that will perform great signs on behalf of God. And in a sense, to show this man is God's man and he speaks with God's authority. And not only that, the staff is given a very particular sign, which is able to turn into a snake. And now we read that whenever Moses throws the staff on the ground, he is so startled by this that he's afraid of the snake. And naturally so, because snakes are awful, vile creatures. They're like worms that can kill you. And so it's only natural to be afraid of them. And that's the reaction he has. This isn't a mere trick of the eyes. This is a real life snake that begins to appear. And we may wonder why a snake? You know, there could be many other animals that God could have turned the staff into. Why a snake? And I think the reason why it's a snake and why a lot of scholars think that it was a snake was because if you picture in your mind's eye what a pharaoh looks like, a very cartoonish pharaoh in your head, what you will have is probably a man who's got a very big hat on, but on the hat there is a snake, a cobra, ready to pounce about here on his forehead. And that would have represented the Egyptian god Er, who, when combined with the pharaohs who were deemed like God, was seen to be the most authoritative and powerful God that could exist. And so, by in a sense giving Moses a sign that he is able to control by picking it up by the tail or by throwing it on the ground, God is showing Moses that the sign he has given him and the God that he is sending him has power over the most powerful man in the ancient world, the Pharaoh, so that even the symbol on his crown of a cobra ready to pounce is but a sense, a toy in the hand of Moses. You do not need to be afraid of Pharaoh because look at what the power of God can do through you. 
And so he gives him the second sign as well, if that's not enough, which is he puts his hand inside a cloak and it comes out and it's got a, a white illness. And it, literally in the Hebrew, the word leprous isn't there. Most people read the leprosy back. We just know it was probably some sort of white, uh, contagious disease. And we might think that's a bit of a funny one, but if you think of what cities would have been like several thousand years ago, in the days before indoor plumbing, in the days before hand washing, in the days before simple things like, uh, like I'm sure nobody in Egypt carried around a little squirty bottle of hand sanitizer with them wherever they went. Can you imagine what disease was like in the ancient world? Like what was terrifying is, and what made people live for such a short length of time in the ancient world was just the sheer amount of bacteria they got exposed to and illnesses they got exposed to. Because before the time of medicine, nobody knew how to treat them. And so when somebody got sick, and worse, it was something that was contagious, what did you do? You put them out of the camp. You got them out of the city because it will spread like wildfire. If we thought COVID spread quickly in a city, whenever we were self-isolating, wearing masks, sanitizing everything that we touched, can you imagine what disease would do whenever, literally when someone needs to go out to the toilet, they just walk out the front door of their house and squat in the street? Disease would have been horrific. It would have been the one thing that would have been a huge problem that Pharaoh would have no control over, that no matter how great an Egyptian empire could become, it could have no control over disease. And yet here's God taking a illness that is contagious and by a simple gesture is able to heal and restore it. God can control not just great things greater than Pharaoh, he can control the things that Pharaoh can't control. And then Moses is given a third sign, which is he's to take a bit of water out of the River Nile. Now, he doesn't literally do this. This is a sign that he's to take on faith. And as he takes the water out of the Nile, the Nile, which is the lifeline of Egypt, Egypt would not exist without the Nile. It is their drinking water. It is the irrigation of their crops. It is the reason life exists in the desert of Egypt is the Nile. Without the Nile, there is no Egypt. Moses is able to scoop it out and turn it to blood before the eyes of Pharaoh and his court, as we will read in later weeks, showing that the God who is sending Moses is more powerful than Pharaoh able to control the things that Pharaoh can't control, and even more than that, is able to shape the very geography that has caused the nation of Egypt to arise. This is the greatness of the God who's sending Moses. These signs show the gravity and the extent of the God who sent him to give him confidence to know that he can boldly go before Pharaoh and make his claims to let his people go because look at the God he worships. There is no God like him. Now, we may be sitting here thinking, well, you know, that's lovely and good, but if I try to share my faith with my friends and family members and I throw a walking stick down in the kitchen floor, not a lot's going to happen. This is great for Moses, but where are the signs that give me proof and validity of my faith that it's true, that it's certain that I can rely on it? I think there's a lot of us probably, we believe the gospel, 
You know, we take it to heart. We, there, there is no greater treasure truth that we have in our hearts than the fact that God sent his one and only son to die for us for forgiveness of sins and to raise again to give us hope. That, that for a lot of us, I'm sure, is the most treasured truth that we have. But if we're honest, we think if only there was some way to convince the people around us if it's true, there was only some way to show some sort of sign to show them that, that we knew with certainty and could have confidence in it. And if we're honest, sometimes not having that great sign or that great power makes us a little bit ashamed, a little bit shy, and causes us to hang back. One of the things I would love to instill in you is that if there is one message in the world around us that we can have confidence in, it's reliability, it's authority, and it's power, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no figure who has shaped the modern world to the extent that Jesus Christ has shaped it to the point where we are meeting in the year of our Lord, 2022 AD, after his death. That is the extent to which the life of Jesus has shaped the world around us. And there is no other truth that has permeated throughout the world, transforming continents, transforming countries and societies the same way that the Christian gospel has. It is the only religion that is worshipped, in a sense, evenly across all of the continents of the world, even in Antarctica. It is able to transcend cultural boundaries. It is able to be sung and praised in every sort of language and tongue and is not bound to a singular nation. The gospel has went throughout the whole world and changed lives of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. There is no story or truth like it. And so often I think we look at the things that are in the world around us, and the big thing that we often feel is the competitive belief in our country, which is atheism or secularism, is we think, well, that just seems so much more scientific and rigorous and logical. But here's the thing, nobody lives as an atheist. Whenever I was a student, I really grappled with atheism. I really, really deeply considered becoming an atheist. At one point, we were doing a module in Western philosophy, and having read all of the things that the best of what modern philosophy will say about atheism. Nobody lives like an atheist. The great atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was driven mad trying to live as an atheist. The French philosopher Albert Camus in, in his uh, book Sisyphus writes that really the only meaning to life is that existence is better than non-existence. And let's be honest, None of us live like that. None of us live as if we are merely a bundle of atoms and that our feelings and emotions are merely chemical reactions taking place in our brains. None of us live like that. None of us see the suffering of another human being and think, well, that's just some atoms and molecules being rearranged and really there is no meaning or value to it anyway. We are all moved when we see suffering. We are all experience those moments of love whenever we are with our family or with our loved ones, and we don't just write it off as mere chemicals in our brain. But instead, we live with the great truth that Christians have believed, was that we were made with a purpose and an end, which was to glorify the God who made us. And the God who has been infinitely loved, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has made us to know love in this world. 
And that whenever we see suffering, we know and are pained and grieved by it because we know that we were made in a world that was once good but has been marred by the effects of sin. And whenever we go out into the world around us, we live with hope and meaning and purpose because we know that there is something greater and bigger than me that my life is not just a cosmic blip, but I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And even if your friends who aren't Christians who would maybe object to everything I have just said, if you ask them why do they behave the way they do, they will rhyme off morals that are indebted entirely to the teachings of Jesus Christ, saying that, well, you know, they just think you should treat others as you want to be treated. Or they will say things like, judge not lest ye be judged. Why? Because nothing has shaped or formed us the way the teaching and life of Jesus Christ has. And the good news that he has been dead and raised again for forgiveness of sins is the only truth that has transformed this world the extent to which it has. To the point where a non-Christian agnostic historian like Tom Holland wrote this in one of his recent books, He said, to be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and of the civilization to which it gave birth. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as alive as it has ever been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that have swept Africa and Asia over the past century, in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit, like a living fire, still blows upon the world, and in Europe and North America in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as a Christian. All are heirs to the same revolution, a revolution that has at its molten heart the image of a God dead on a cross. What is the sign that we have to show that we can have confidence? It is this, that our God entered into space and time, real space and time that we can look and read about in ancient history, and that he died for us, something no ancient God would ever do, and was raised again in a society that thought resurrection was impossible that we may have forgiveness of sins. What is the sign that we have? The sign that we have is our Savior, Jesus, and showing him in all the clarity and beauty that he has held out to us in in the Bible. That's the sign that we have. We can have confidence in it because there is no other sign like it in the world and no other truth like that that has transformed the world you live in. Have confidence in this, for there is no greater nor more sure truth than we have than what we read of Jesus Christ in this book. We can have confidence in it, but we also have a commission. We have a commission, just as Moses did. If you look down with me, whenever Moses is given these signs, we would think that he would go, well, that's wonderful. I'll just dawdle off into Egypt. But that's not what he says. He does what we all do. Whenever we are not shy or nervous about something, he gives excuses. He says, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow in speech and tongue. Do you get how foolish this is for Moses to say? 
He's turning around to God and saying, look, you don't understand, God. I'm, I'm not a great public speaker. I'm, I'm a wee bit slow of tongue. You know, I don't speak received English. I have, and we presume Moses would have had a stammer. That's what most uh, scholars think that this is alluding to. But who's he speaking to when he says all this? He's speaking to the God who made his mouth. I'm almost trying to say to him, look, God, you don't, you don't know what, what happens whenever I open my mouth. All sorts of noises come out that don't even sound like words. And yet it's foolish because God knows that. God knows exactly who he is. And he has chosen Moses exactly because of who Moses is. And so whenever he's speaking to Moses, that's why he says to him, who gave human beings their mouths? The God who has given Moses his mouth is the one who can use it for all sorts of glorious and wonderful things. And I think so often whenever we think about sharing the gospel with our friends and family, we have a similar excuse that we wail out before God. Oh no, not me. I don't know all the answers. I'm really shy. I'm not good at speaking about my faith in public. You know, I'm a really private person and I like to keep my private life private. I'm just no good at that. I, I wouldn't be good at it. Somebody else can be good at it, but it's just not for me. Yet one of the great things we believe is that in the gospel, your personality and your character are not bugs in the system, but they are part of God's plan. As Rico Tice wrote, uh, that great evangelist in one of his books, God has wired you to tell others in a way that allows you to be yourself. God has made you who you are, not on accident, but he's made you who you are on purpose. And who you are is able to speak to people of the beauty of your Savior in ways that no one else can. So that you can pull aside people who would never talk to me, nor William, who are able to, you're able to interact with people that we just don't get to know because we spend our lives jumping activity, activity at church. There are people in your office who no evangelist will ever meet, who no minister will ever meet. There are people in your family who you may be the only Christian they know. And you are placed exactly who you are with your personality and your interests to share your Savior with them. But we see Moses, like ourselves, still has one final excuse up his sleeve. If you look down with me, in verse 13, he says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send somebody else. Isn't that how we could feel about sharing our faith sometimes? Oh, Lord, anybody but me. But here's the thing. If we all wait for the magic person to come along and do it, it'll never happen. I'm sure you all know this story, but I love it too much, and I'm going to share it again. It's a story of four people and the four people that are called everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. You've maybe heard this before. The story is that there was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. And somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job to do it. But everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have. Now that's all clear. Uh, I think 
You get the idea. Whenever we are expecting somebody to do it, somebody else will do it. What happens in reality is nobody does. And here's the thing. You are the somebody that God has placed in the lives of so many people who need to know the good news of Jesus. He hasn't placed you there by accident. You haven't stumbled in there by random chance. But God has deliberately placed you with your quirks and your personality to show the wonderful beauty of the Savior that you worship to them just as they need it. So can I encourage you? Take confidence in what you believe. It is the greatest news that our world has ever witnessed. And it is good news, good news for people who want to hear it. And go, because God is sending you exactly who you are right now to share it into his world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made us into who we are and you know exactly what we are like. And Lord, you use us to partner with you in the glorious mission that you have for the world of drawing sinners to yourself. Would we take confidence in the certainty of the gospel we believe and be unashamed of it, but proudly and with confidence declare it to everyone that we meet. For it is in the beautiful and majestic name of our Savior Jesus we pray. Amen.